Public Radio International, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Weather across the U.S. has been unusual this winter. Record snowfalls in the east, a lack of snow, record warmth and drought in parts of the west, and many wonder if climate change is to blame. When people ask me about this year and whether this is global warming, I say, well, global warming looks like this. And I also say that we'll see a lot more of these more frequently as we go forward. Lessons for the future. Also, in Kentucky, teaching evolution can be perilous, and so is explaining climate change. Same kind of pushback, comments about, I shouldn't be teaching it, it's not true, there's no evidence. That's not connected to religious beliefs, that's rejection of science. Science teaching in the face of fundamentalism in the Bible Belt. We'll have those stories and more this week on Living on Earth. Stick around. Support for Living on Earth comes from United Technologies, innovating to make the world a better, more sustainable place to live. From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios in Boston and PRI, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. There's a new executive order that directs the federal government to deeply cut greenhouse gas emissions and increase renewable energy use within its own operations. It's part of the Climate Action Plan President Obama unveiled almost two years ago. In addition, the Federal Emergency Management Agency, FEMA, will only grant disaster preparedness funds to states that factor climate risks in their hazard mitigation plans. Here to explain these announcements is Rachel Cletus, lead economist and climate policy manager at the Union of Concerned Scientists. What they announced was that they would be cutting federal government greenhouse gas emissions 40 percent over the next decade. And they also announced some major commitments to 30% of their energy coming from renewable sources. In June of 2013, the president laid out a vision for his climate action plan. And what we're starting to see is some meat on the bones here. There are many pieces, both to help cut emissions, as well as to help build our nation's resilience to climate impacts. And we've seen some of those pieces be announced over the last year and a half, including things like a draft proposal to limit carbon emissions from power plants, vehicle standards, steps to cut methane emissions. And this is simply another piece. To what extent does this federal order stimulate economic activity in the private sector? It's a very significant step in that direction. And that was evidenced by the fact that when the executive order was announced, there was also a business roundtable that was convened among the largest federal government suppliers of energy and energy technology. And we saw a number of major businesses, including GE, Honeywell, and others make commitments to cut their greenhouse emissions as well. We're not just getting the federal government making cuts, but we're pulling along an entire supply chain that's also being greened. To what extent does this stimulate the broader economy to take these uh, green options? You know, many years ago, President Clinton issued an order requiring the federal government use recycled paper, and it's now ubiquitous. It's very interesting because what we're seeing here is a bit of push-pull. Sure, the federal government is taking leadership, but actually there are many states around the country that have already been demonstrating uh, leadership on clean energy progress, whether it's in deploying renewable energy like wind and solar or implementing standards to improve energy efficiency. And what we've seen in the marketplace is a dramatic fall in costs of wind and solar. So you can see that the federal government is joining the party now. They're taking advantage of these cost-effective, low-carbon energy resources. In your view, you see the federal government as a follower here rather than a leader, it sounds like. I think they're doing a bit of both. They're taking advantage of market realities. But the other thing that they're doing is they're setting a bar for the nation as a whole. 
this is what's possible when one of the biggest players in the energy market takes a step like this. Think about the Department of Defense, for example, a huge energy consumer. Think about all those public lands on which you can site wind and solar resources. There's a real opportunity here, and I think they're pointing the way to that opportunity and the economic benefits that can bring. What will this cost the federal government? Well, that's the interesting thing, because the costs of these technologies have fallen so much that, in fact, they're saving taxpayers money, up to $18 billion in avoided energy costs, not just from renewable energy, but also from energy efficiency. And that doesn't even take into account the fact that it's bringing many other benefits along with it. So when we transition to low-carbon energy resources, we generate economic benefits. We also cut other pollutants that have big public health costs. What have federal agencies already done to cut their energy use? Well, a number of federal agencies have already made commitments around building efficiency, around reducing their water consumption. And what this executive order does is essentially streamline and make some uniform commitments across different federal government agencies, as well as the supply chain that meets the energy demands of these agencies. Rachel, I want to turn our attention now to this uh, recent announcement from the Federal Emergency Management Agency, FEMA, which has said now it will approve disaster preparedness funds only for those states whose governors sign hazard mitigation plans that directly address climate disruption. How might this put pressure on governors like Rick Scott of Florida or Bobby Jindal of Louisiana, who so far have refused to take action on climate, despite a number of people's concerns that their states are highly vulnerable to the impact of climate disruption. I want to start by saying that the science of climate change is firmly established. We know that these risks are here. We saw them clearly outlined in the National Climate Assessment that was released last year, pointing out a number of risks that the U.S. faces, including sea level rise, drought, increased precipitation, wildfires. So it's unfortunate that we're having a partisan conversation about this. What the guidance does, essentially, is it says that we know there are many factors that affect these kinds of disasters and their occurrence. And one of the major risk factors right now is climate change. So it's common sense that you would include it in your plans as you prepare for future disasters. FEMA provides this money so that states can invest in a variety of ways to make sure that when a future disaster happens, they're better prepared. To be very clear, this new FEMA guidance does not affect disaster relief, the kind of money that goes in the immediate aftermath of a terrible tragedy, a big storm, a big fire. What it does affect is what's called FEMA's Hazard Mitigation Assistance Program, and that's a program that essentially helps states prepare before the next disaster strikes. What are some examples of the climate-induced hazards that states' hazard mitigation plans will need to address? Right. So, for example, we know that there are many coastal states that are already experiencing sea level rise and that the science projects sea level rise is only worsening over time so that the risks of coastal flooding or storm surge are only increasing. When any investments are being made to help prepare a state for future disasters, you would want to take into account this very real scientific fact. Rachel Cletus is the lead economist and climate policy manager with the Climate and Energy Program at the Union of Concerned Scientists. Rachel, thanks so much for taking the time to speak with us today. Thank you very much for having me on your program, Steve. America is now the world's biggest producer of crude oil and natural gas, thanks to the technology of hydraulic fracturing. Along with profits, so-called fracking has also generated a fair amount of controversy. 
from concerns about water and air pollution to apparently related earthquakes. There is currently a patchwork of state regulations for fracking, including an outright ban in New York State. And now the federal government has released regulations for fracking on federal lands. Joining us now to discuss the rules is Abram Lusgarten, a reporter with ProPublica who covers the energy industry. Welcome back to Living on Earth, Abram. Thank you. Nice to be here. So these regulations are limited to federal lands. How much of the fracking that's happening right now is on federal land? I think the official statistics are somewhere around 100,000 wells. So that's going to be about 10% of the drilling that's happening in the United States. So the most significant place right now is the Bakken Shale. About half, a little less than half of the drilling in the Bakken Shale is on the Fort Berthold Indian Reservation. Besides the Bakken, central Wyoming, northern Colorado, parts of California, all have very large tracts of federal lands, tens of thousands of wells, and there will be new wells coming in in the future, and they'll all be subject to these rules. So specifically, what will these regulations do now? Well, the regulations essentially update existing regulations, and they're essentially new regulations to protect groundwater from damage that can be caused through the fracking process. So they're aimed squarely at ensuring that the wells are constructed well. So they have some requirements for how cement casing will be installed around the structure of an oil or gas well, around how you'll test that cement casing to make sure that it withstands pressure. They'll do what's called mechanical integrity tests, which are just a really important examination to make sure that there can't be any leaks. They'll require a geological analysis of the area around a new well to in part determine whether there's fractures or natural fault lines or anything else underground that might allow chemicals or fluids to leak into a surrounding or nearby aquifer. And finally, they'll, they'll require that waste temporarily be handled at fracking sites in closed containers, basically in steel tanks instead of the open waste pits that have also been associated with groundwater pollution across the country. So tell me the chemicals that are at risk of getting into groundwater. Well, there's a very long list of chemicals that are known to be used in fracking, but there's types of them. There's basically biocides that are meant to kill algae. There's surfactants, which is like a soap that's meant to kind of lubricate the inside of the well and a couple other classes of chemicals. And part of the problem has been that we don't know what the complete list is, and we don't know that because the oil and gas drilling companies have protected that information as trade secrets. And part of these new rules for BLM lands is requiring oil and gas companies companies to release that information, or at least a lot of that information. How is industry responding to these rules? Industry is, with very familiar refrains, fighting these rules. The American Petroleum Institute immediately filed a lawsuit to stop the rules from taking effect. And the industry across the board has said repeatedly that it will be expensive and onerous and will probably disincentivize investment and drilling on federal lands and lower federal income related to that drilling and so forth. But basically, it seems to be a very thin argument. I've looked a bit at the costs, including the industry's own cost estimates. They're as high as about one and a half percent of the cost of drilling a well. The Department of Interior estimates they're about as low as one-tenth of one percent of the cost of drilling a well. The total cost across the country is estimated to be about $350 million a year when you consider tens of billions of dollars of profits for each of these companies. It's a very insignificant amount. And at the same time, many of these states actually have state regulations that are as strict or more strict in some cases as these new federal rules. So they're already able to comply. They're already assuming the heightened cost of regulations in places like Wyoming on state lands or private lands. And uh, I just don't see these new federal rules as being too much of a roadblock to industry. 
Now, what about the critics of hydraulic fracturing, those environmental activists who focus on energy extraction? What's been the response to the rules? Tepid at best. They, of course, wanted more. Their central criticism is that the Obama administration has taken a path towards addressing climate change and that hydrocarbon development should not be allowed on federal lands. They wanted other strict requirements as well. They wanted the disclosure of chemicals to come without any sort of caveats, without any exemptions for proprietary information. And they wanted some very specific technical details around the well construction requirements that I described earlier, just things that are incrementally more stringent than what's actually been put in place. So Abram, at the end of the day, how important are these new federal rules on fracking? Well, it's kind of a mixed bag, but to the extent that federal lands, particularly in the Western United States, are an important source of oil and gas and will continue to be, this will substantially mitigate the risks that regulators have been seeing and that residents have been seeing in those lands. It sets a baseline for what best practices are acceptable to the federal government. That can be a guide to the states. It can be a guide to the companies. There's another important element that I think is kind of significant, and that's that by requiring all of these things, it creates a public record. And one of the problems problems has been years of allegations of environmental contamination from drilling with very little data to go back and reference to see how and when a well was drilled, what kind of geology it was drilled into. And with the advent of these federal rules, there will be a public record that can be searched and requested and analyzed. And should we have to look back again, there'll be a lot more information to work with. Abram Lesgarten is a reporter with ProPublica. Thanks so much for taking the time with us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. The Gulf Stream brings warm water north up the Atlantic coast of the U.S. and feeds currents that help create Europe's mild climate, and it may be in trouble. A study just published in Nature Climate Change suggests that this system of ocean currents that regulates temperatures might be changing. One author of this report is Michael Mann, distinguished professor and director of the Earth System Science Center at Penn State University, who says there is cause for concern. So there's this ocean current. We sometimes call it the conveyor belt or the North Atlantic drift. It's this current that brings warm water from the subtropical regions of the North Atlantic up towards Iceland and the northern latitudes in Europe. Well, we have long suspected that as we continue to warm the Earth and melt ice, the Greenland ice sheet, for example, as ice melts and runs off into the ocean, it's freshening the ocean. And it turns out that when you freshen those northern latitudes of the North Atlantic Ocean, you make the surface waters less dense. And if you make those waters less dense, they no longer sink and they no longer drive this conveyor belt, this ocean circulation pattern. So there's this potential that we could see a substantial decrease or even a complete shutdown of this mode of ocean circulation, which is so important for delivering heat to the high latitudes, uh, keeping the climate of Europe moderate. Now, when you say it keeps Europe warm, we're saying that places like England, which is far north of the eastern United States, New York, Boston, tends to be much warmer and has earlier spring. That's right. And of course, Western Europe relies upon that moderate climate. If they were to lose that moderate climate, that would obviously be problematic for them, for their economy. The pattern of climates, of rainfall, of drought, of temperature that we rely upon today, and we rely upon the stability of those climate patterns for human civilization, well, if they were to change abruptly, that could really spell trouble for us, for other living things. So any abrupt change in climate could potentially be catastrophic. We have long suspected that 
the North Atlantic Ocean circulation, the conveyor belt is one of those components of the climate system that could potentially undergo a very rapid change if we continue to warm the planet with fossil fuel burning and increased greenhouse gas concentrations. The climate models predict that we could see that current begin to shut down perhaps by the end of the century. As it turns out, the models appear to be too conservative because in our latest study, we find evidence that that current is already weakening substantially and could be much closer to the point of a total collapse than the current generation climate models would suggest. Some of the things that you're describing echo the plot of The Day After Tomorrow, Roland Emmerich's film. Yes, and uh, I actually watched the movie with my first-year students, and we pick holes in, in not just the plot, but in the, the underlying scientific claims. Because while there is a grain of truth to the movie, I mean, that grain of truth is the possibility that we could see a shutdown of this conveyor belt ocean current system. The fact is that it wouldn't play out over a few days. It would play out over decades. It wouldn't cause massive tornado outbreaks in Los Angeles or a return to ice age conditions throughout the entire northern hemisphere. The effects would be more subtle, but they would nonetheless be potentially detrimental. And that's important to keep in mind as well. One of the greatest concerns here is that if we did shut down that ocean circulation system, the conveyor belt, while we wouldn't get a new ice age in the northern hemisphere, we would fundamentally change the flow of nutrients that feed ecosystems in the North Atlantic Ocean, which is one of the most productive regions for sea life in the entire world. And we would potentially lose access to fish populations that we rely upon right now at a time when we're already seeing threats to fisheries from ocean acidification, from overfishing. And so while the impacts would not play out like a Hollywood disaster film, they could still be disastrous for us. Now, in terms of this change in ocean circulation, when has this happened before in history? Part of the original speculation for why this could happen, it wasn't based on climate models at all. It was based on the fact that this happened. It happened 12,000 years ago, roughly. As we were coming out of the last ice age, we began to melt a whole lot of ice, and all that fresh water flowed off into the North Atlantic Ocean, where it formed this lens of fresh water, which inhibited this conveyor belt circulation. We think it shut down then. We didn't go back into a full-blown ice age, but we did see a return to quasi-ice age conditions in regions neighboring the North Atlantic. So because it happened before in response to a natural warming, that was the warming because of changes in the Earth's orbit or relative to the sun, now we are undergoing a different warming. We're warming the planet, not from natural factors that act over thousands of years, but the human factor of increased greenhouse gas concentrations. It's a much more rapid warming, but there isn't nearly as much ice around as there was at the end of the last ice age. And so there isn't the potential for quite as much of that fresh water running off into the North Atlantic. We don't think that we're likely to see anything that severe, but it is the closest thing we have to an analog for what could happen to this current system due to human-caused global warming. Now, how soon might we see this? I mean, this year, for example, we had this exceptionally cold and snowy winter in the eastern seaboard of the United States. To what extent might this recent winter, actually it's not quite over yet, is it, be related to maybe the slowing down of the North Atlantic conveyor belt? 
Oh, that's a great example of, you know, the cutting edge of the science. We're still trying to find the answers, figure out the answers to some of these questions. Some scientists think that these unusually severe winters we've seen in the northeastern U.S., these uh, very strong nor'easters, these uh, huge snowfalls, could actually be related to another climate change impact, the loss of sea ice from the Arctic and the way that that is altering large-scale weather patterns. But this slowdown in the conveyor belt circulation would also be impacting regional climates, it potentially in such a way as to yield more severe cold winters in parts of eastern North America. We can't rule that out either. We're still trying to figure out the answers to some of these questions. But the problem is that the uncertainty in this case, and you sometimes hear you know, critics will say, well, uncertainty is a reason not to act on climate change. We're not certain about what will happen. Well, actually, uncertainty is a reason why we should act, because this is yet a, another reminder of a nasty surprise that may be in store in the greenhouse. If we you know, see an abrupt change in this ocean current system, it could create problems that are even greater than those we currently project. So maybe the loss of Arctic sea ice has changed where the uh, jet stream goes, and that's brought some of the cold weather east. And maybe this slowdown or the slowing down of the Gulf Stream, the North Atlantic conveyor belt, might be another reason why things are getting colder in the east. I mean, it sounds like a bunch of things are going wrong all at once, or am I just being too negative here? Well, you're right. It's the law of unintended consequences, right? We are toying with what Wally Broker used to refer to as an angry beast. We're poking it with sticks. And that is not something that you want to be doing. The fact that we don't understand this system completely is a reason for even greater caution, because it means that we could be in for unforeseen consequences, so-called climate surprises. And now there is some good news here. I don't want to leave your listeners with nothing but pessimism. Um, Please go ahead. Please go ahead. (laughs) We are not yet committed to what we might envision as truly catastrophic climate change. Most climate scientists who study the impacts of climate change will tell you that if we can hold warming below about two degrees centigrade, that's about three and a half degrees Fahrenheit, we would avoid some of the most disastrous impacts. And we might avoid a full-blown collapse of this ocean circulation pattern. There is still time to act, and we see some reason for optimism. There was a a flatlining of global carbon emissions over the last year, even while economic activity increased globally. Some suggestion that maybe we're starting to turn the corner of decarbonizing our economy. There's a very important summit coming up later this year in Paris, where many are hopeful that we will reach binding commitments to reduce global carbon emissions even further. So there's some reasons for optimism, but there is no question. There is an urgency to acting on this problem now, unlike anything we have ever witnessed before. And our study is just another reminder of that. Michael Mann is Distinguished Professor and Director of the Earth System Science Center at Penn State University. He's also author of The Hockey Stick and the Climate Wars, Dispatches from the Front Lines. Thanks so much for taking the time with us today, Professor. It was a pleasure. Now, here in the eastern part of the country, we've been breaking snowfall records. But on the West Coast, the snow season has been a bust, much to the disgust of would-be skiers. Indeed, snow levels were at a record low in Washington and Oregon. And that's not only a problem for skiers. Water utilities rely on snowpack for supplies during the summer. But as Ashley Ahern of the public media collaborative EarthFix reports, it's not time to hit the panic button just yet. All right, off we go. 
Scott Petit screws together some aluminum tubes and walks over to stick them into the snow near Stevens Pass Ski Resort. 33 inches depth. Petit's a water supply specialist with the Natural Resources Conservation Service here in Washington. He's been monitoring snow levels to predict water supplies for more than 20 years. He says this is one of the worst years he's seen. The Cascade Mountains around us are mostly brown and green, not white. And so you can see by that we have about 30 inches, and normally we would have 120 to 150 inches up here. Not good. Snow levels in some parts of western Washington are more than 90% below normal. Statewide, average snow level is 71% below normal. In Oregon, things are worse. The state has received less than a quarter of its normal snowfall, with the driest spots in the southern and southeastern part of the state. But here's the weird thing, and the reason Scott Petit and other water managers aren't freaking out yet. Total precipitation is at or above normal for most of the northwest. It's just coming as rain, not snow. We're doing just fine at the moment. Mike Hansen is a spokesperson for Bonneville Power Administration. It manages 31 federal dams on the Columbia and Snake Rivers and provides about a third of the electricity for the Northwest. He says that as bad as things might look out your window or on your local ski slope. That doesn't give you the total picture. What's really important to us in particular is what is happening at the higher elevations throughout the northern Rockies going into Canada. Snow levels there are looking pretty good. And Hansen says that snow melt will feed into BPA's reservoirs on the Columbia and Snake throughout the season. Many communities in the region depend on snowmelt to supplement water supplies during the dry months, especially those that get their water directly from snow-fed rivers and don't have reservoirs to store water. That's not the case in Seattle. City water managers say their reservoirs have enough capacity to meet demand throughout the dry season, and they're keeping them full in preparation. Amy Snover is the director of the Climate Impacts Group at the University of Washington. She says that water supply systems vary throughout the region. But in many cases, the water managers who are paying attention to the conditions can actually change the way they manage their systems and try to catch that water as it's going down the river because it fell as rain instead of snow. Water managers and others have called the warm, rainy winter this year anomalous. Snover agrees, but she says it's an anomaly worth looking at because this year's weather patterns are in line with climate change projections for the region. When people ask me about this year and whether this is global warming, I say, well, global warming looks like this. And I also say that we'll see a lot more of these more frequently as we go forward. There could still be some snow this month, but experts say it's unlikely that it will be enough to make up for all the lost snow this winter. And there could be droughts later on in the summer. Water supplies for hydropower and people aren't at dire levels yet, but scientists worry that without that pulse of cold snowmelt into rivers of the Northwest this spring and summer, spawning salmon and their young will be the first to suffer. I'm Ashley Ahern in Seattle. Ashley Ahern reports for the public media collaborative EarthFix. Time for a trip beyond the headlines now. Peter Dykstra has been investigating and he's on the line from Conyers, Georgia. Peter's with the dailyclimate.org and environmental health news. That's ehn.org. Well, Peter, what's going on? 
Hi, Steve. Let's start out with a screwy little story from the high seas. Commercial whaling has been outlawed worldwide for over three decades. Some native communities are allowed to hunt whales on a subsistence basis and as part of cultural tradition, and most people, including myself, have no problem with that. But Japan's commercial whaling industry has dodged the ban by claiming their whaling and importing whale meat from Norway or Iceland is for scientific research. Yeah, that's been around forever, but it's not exactly clear what kind of research, if any, comes out of this. Well, unless you want to count the fact that some people are still making the scientific discovery that they think whale meat is delicious. But I digress. Recently, two groups, the Environmental Investigation Agency and the Animal Welfare Institute, uncovered documents showing that Japan rejected imports of whale meat from Norway due to pesticide contamination, chemicals linked to birth defects and cancer, like aldrin, dieldrin, and chlordane. So it's not just mercury, but also farm chemicals that are showing up in ocean animals. Yes, and that's something that's been showing up with alarming frequency, particularly in the northern latitudes. Polar bears, seals, walruses, and more. Animals near the top of the food chain can be the last stop for toxic chemicals as they bioaccumulate their way up that food chain. Not a happy story, but a fascinating one in several ways, where years of international law and international scorn haven't finished off commercial whaling, the discovery that some whale meat is unfit for consumption might do the trick. Secondly, it's a powerful lesson that toxic chemicals, even if they're used thousands of miles away and have been banned for years, have far-reaching impacts. And one more point for which we'll have to sound the irony alert. Okay, we're prepared. Launch your irony. After 30 years of the sham of research whaling, some genuine scientific research checking food for contamination may help stick the fork in commercial whaling. Huh, saving the whales by poisoning them. Kind of weird science, indeed. What's your next one this week? Silent science and climate comedy. Here's an update on a story we discussed a couple of weeks ago. Florida Governor Rick Scott denies that there's a state government ban on saying the words global warming or climate change, despite a staff attorney, a contract employee, and a scientist coming forward and saying there was an unwritten ban. This week, two more shoes dropped. Uh, let's see. That would be like five shoes in total. Oh, five shoes for now. Number four was a state environmental manager who filed a complaint saying he was formally reprimanded and sent home from work for bringing up climate change at a state meeting in February. Bart Bibler's complaint also says he was directed to seek out his doctor to see if he was fit to do his job. Oh my, so if his complaint is true, they're saying that he was potentially crazy for mentioning climate change? Which may be why the state's emergency management director figuratively buttoned his lips rather than say climate change at a state hearing. A Democratic state senator tried to get Brian Kuhn to say those forbidden words as bipartisan hilarity breaks out among his Senate colleagues. There's a link to this hilarious video on the LOE website. That's LOE.org. You know, I just wish the rest of climate news was always that funny. Hey, Peter, give us our weekly history lesson now, please. One of the things you've got to love about broadcasting is that when you record someone's words, you can hold them accountable forever. President Nixon said, I am not a crook. The first President Bush said, read my lips. President Clinton, when he wagged his finger at America and said, I did not have, you know, yada, yada, yada. But one of my favorites from President Obama came out five years ago this week, and I bet he wishes he could reel this one back. It turns out, by the way, that oil rigs today generally don't cause spills. They are technologically very advanced. Well, it wasn't such a big deal when he said it. 
But three weeks after he said it, the Deepwater Horizon spill became the biggest disaster in American offshore history. Eleven men died when an oil rig exploded, leading to an ecological disaster for the Gulf of Mexico and an economic one for the seafood and tourism industries along the Gulf. The fifth anniversary of the explosion and spill will come next month. President Obama's confident words about oil rigs were related to opening up more offshore territory for oil and gas drilling. That effort was put on hold, but from the Arctic to the Atlantic coast, there's pushback lately to expand drilling off our coastlines. And you can get all of our words, uh, audio, the podcasts on our website, LOE.org. Peter Dykstra is with Environmental Health News as EHN.org and TheDailyClimate.org. Thanks, Peter, for taking the time with us. All right, Steve. Thanks a lot. We'll talk to you soon. A number of fundamentalist Christians believe that the Bible is the Word of God and trumps all human knowledge including the scientific evidence that life has been evolving on Earth for millions of years. These creationists believe God created the Earth and its inhabitants over the course of just seven days, roughly 6,000 years ago. So of all the difficult jobs one might imagine, teaching evolution in America's Bible Belt must rank near the top. But there are dedicated educators who choose this thorny path, and one of them, a biology professor at the University of Kentucky, wrote his personal story in Orion magazine. It was so engaging, I went to visit him. Uh, my name is Jim Krupa. I'm a professor here at the University of Kentucky. I teach evolution and vertebrate biology. We're outside of my laboratory in this glorious windowless building where all ecologists are kept. <laughs> well, I'd like to see inside. Well, let's go on in. Jim's lab looks like a cabinet of wonders or a natural history museum with a huge stuffed sailfish behind his crowded desk and skulls all along the walls. Well, some of these skulls are really fascinating. There's a gorilla up there that's been at this university since 1870. It's so fragile, I don't even touch it. There is a leopard skull up there that apparently died at the 1904 World's Fair in St. Louis. I think that's interesting considering Teddy Roosevelt was at that fair. There's a chance that he may have looked at that animal. <laughs> and then an old a wolf skull from Alaska. Kodiak grizzly from Alaska, all these have been here for well over 100 years. Any kind of roadkill that I might happen upon, I will clean up and use for teaching. So all sorts of good things here, hundreds and hundreds of skulls. But not every exhibit in Jim's lab is long dead. We walk over to a series of tanks filled with snakes. The ones over there, the green ones, are uh, Japanese rat snakes. I've had them since they hatched, and they don't like me very much. This one is a very pretty snake. It's called a milk snake. Hi, how you doing? So this is a gorgeous animal. Oh, wow, look at that. They normally don't bite. They so it's, it's red, eat. or it's actually sort of a vivid pink almost, mm, and black reddish, and white bands. Reddish-orange, so it's a mimic of the deadly coral snake. So the, the old saying is, red on black, friend of Jack, red on yellow, kill a fellow. So if it's red on yellow, it's a coral snake in North America, but I don't have any of those. So this is basically a mimic of a poisonous snake. This one next to us from South Africa. Yeah, all these African egg-eating snakes are from South Africa. I like it when I don't see them. That means they're healthy and happy and they're fed. He likes to act tough. There you go. So he's now uh, impert... They're, what is they're, he gonna, I want to see what he's going to say. That, Whoa! But uh, it, it has almost no teeth, so it's pretty much defenseless. So it basically mimics a venomous snake from Africa, the rhombic viper, I think it is. So yeah, if you can't be tough, act tough, look tough, and keep people away. 
Jim's academic research, though, is not on animals, but on plants that eat animals. All right, so here we have Venus flytraps getting ready to go to flower. They're, they've been dormant, now they're starting to bounce back. These are some more carnivorous plants. These are pitcher plants from Australia here and here. So they're meat eaters, but they're, well, they're yeah. lovely. Insect eater, uh, insect uh, capturing. Yeah, oh, they're, they're very beautiful. They were Darwin's favorite plants. He wrote an entire book on carnivorous plants. So yeah, there are 600 species all around the world. I suppose it's fair. I mean, if we eat plants, then plants should get a crack at animals. Uh, yeah, and they need it. <laughs> so uh, insects fall in and they get the nitrogen and the phosphorus and they don't have to get it from the soil so they can grow in nutrient-poor soil because they get their nutrients from elsewhere. So it's a very interesting adaptation. As well as studying pitcher plants, for the past 20 years, Jim has spent much of his time teaching an introductory biology course, including evolution. Some fundamentalist students challenge him, but there's a long tradition at the University of Kentucky of scholars who defended the great evolutionary theoretician Charles Darwin. In fact, one of UK's most famous alumni is John Scopes, who was put on trial in neighboring Tennessee 90 years ago for teaching evolution. The so-called Scopes Monkey Trial was the first major trial broadcast on the radio, and the epic battle between its two famous lawyers, presidential contender William Jennings Bryan and Clarence Darrow, riveted audiences across America. But as Jim points out, the fight for academic freedom had already been narrowly won in Kentucky. 1921-1922, Kentucky was the first state where there was a movement to pass an anti-evolution bill where uh, one of the forms of the bill had it such that there could be a $5,000 fine for teaching evolution and up to a year in prison. So it was a very hard-fought battle to stop this anti-evolution movement from happening. And it's the University of Kentucky's Frank McVeigh, one of the great presidents, was the one that really stood up and fought it. He spoke to the politicians in Frankfort, Kentucky. He wrote letters on as it turned out, Darwin's birthday, which is also Abraham Lincoln's birthday, so the 12th of February, 1922, he wrote a letter to the people of Kentucky explaining that this was an attack on the university, an attack on academic freedom, that it was not an attack on one's religious beliefs, and that this law would do incredible damage to the university and the state. And as a result, a few weeks later, the final vote came down to a 42 to 41 vote defeating the bill, the law. So off the attention went to Tennessee. So it was really a marvelous thing because he put his job on the line. And during this, there's a student at the University of Kentucky named John Scopes. What happened with him? Yeah, isn't that amazing? All this is going on. John Scopes is here watching this unfold. His three favorite teachers, Professor Miller, Professor Terrell, Professor Funkhauser, were heavily engaged in the battle, helping Frank McVeigh. William Jennings Bryan was in town giving talks on this. He was attending the talks. From here, 1924, Scopes took a teaching position in Dayton, Tennessee, teaching chemistry and the football coach, and uh, did a little substitute teaching in biology. And so he basically offered himself up to be the person that was charged for teaching evolution in Dayton, Tennessee, and he stepped into history in part because he was inspired by his teachers here at the University of Kentucky and President McVeigh. So 
Jim, what did you think when you were offered a position to teach here at the University of Kentucky? <laughs> oh, my God, I don't want to teach hundreds and hundreds of students in giant classrooms. I want to teach a little class of 25 students where I can hold my skulls and have them hold snakes. So it was scary because an auditorium full of students... That's a daunting teaching environment, and I wasn't sure that I could do it. So I was very apprehensive about taking the job at first. And what about the place's reputation? I mean, this part of the country, a lot of folks who are still very upset about the notion of evolution. Well, and I got my Ph.D. at the University of Oklahoma, and it isn't any different there. So... I was used to this environment by the time I got here, but you know that didn't matter because evolution is the foundation of our science. So I don't care what the general public thinks about it. This is what it defines biology. This is what I'm going to teach. Now you write that E.O. Wilson inspired you to take this job. What did he say that got you to say, yeah, I can do this? Well, he didn't say anything to me personally, but it was right around the time where his autobiography came out, and the title is Naturalist, which I love being one. But he was being interviewed on NPR, and Bob Edwards asked him why he was still teaching introductory biology at Harvard when he was—he is one of the most famous biologists. But what he said to Bob was, it's the most important course that he could teach. Many of the nation's leaders being at Harvard would be taking that class. And so this is the last shot he had at convincing them that science and biology is something wonderful. So he had to do it because he knew it was a very important course. And you know, that's what kept me here because I was still thinking about leaving. But you know, sometimes it's just you have to do something for a greater good. And it turned out I have a knack for teaching big classes. So it was kind of fun. <laughs> So what was it like when you first started? I mean, how much pushback did you get from some of the students in your class? Well, not a lot face-to-face. -face. Most of it at the end of the semester when we get the written comments on our teaching evaluations, that's what shocked me. There were, and I have pages and pages of written comments about you had no right to teach us evolution. It's not science. It's religion. It's atheism. You shouldn't be teaching it, da-da-da-da-da. But again, that's a very small percent of the students. But they're a vocal minority can make a lot of noise. <laughs> yeah, tell me about some of those tense moments with what you call the vocal minority. Yeah, well, you know, it's... I had the one student who shouted from the back of the auditorium that Darwin denounced evolution on his deathbed, therefore I shouldn't be teaching it. And of course, that's a lie. The creationists who made that up admitted it. And that was a strange thing to have a student shout out and then walk out. And I've had that mm, not quite a dozen times over the 20 years. So it throws you for a bit of a loop every time. <laughs> what do you say to folks that say that... Uh... Evolution is a theory and therefore not a fact. Well, I have to explain to them what theory is. And I'm kind of a grumpy old man in many ways anymore. And I get very upset every time I hear the word theory used incorrectly, which is on a daily basis. But I explain to them that a theory is this broad, comprehensive explanation of some aspect of nature that generates testable and falsifiable predictions. It's not a hunch. It's not a notion uh, as people think. So I try to make the point very clearly what a theory is. And I do explain that as one of the most powerful tools that science has. It's what we base what we do on. And then I explain a fact versus hypothesis. But I make it very clear what a theory is. I make it very clear what a fact is. And that evolution is both. And of course, I'll have people say, no, can't be, has to be one or the other. And my response is always, well, we have something called cell theory, 
and yet it's a fact that we are made of cells. We know gravity exists, but it's gravitational theory. We know pathogens are what cause disease, but it's still germ theory. You know, so I, I go at it to a point that's just ridiculous, but you have to keep making the point over and over and over. To what extent did you address religion in those introductory classes? Uh, well, uh, human ecology, I don't touch it at all, but in the non-majors, general biology, really didn't touch it till the very end. But the last lecture, I give them the lecture that I call the social resistance to evolution lecture, and that's where I hit it head on. That's where I explain all the Christian denominations that accept evolution. I give them plenty of examples of evangelical Christians who defend evolution. So Francis Collins, the director of NIH, evangelical Christian. My job is to explain to them that when somebody, their parents, their ministers, their friends tell them that it's either evolution or God, you can't have both. I point out that that's an error, and I give them as many examples of Christians of various denominations who are also evolutionary biologists and say, so here you go. This line is blurred. And so that's the last lecture. That can be the lecture that gets me most stressed and worked up ahead of time because this is where I'm going to have some people that are upset that I'm even saying this. But I had to think about this for years, well, years, I should, maybe a year, whether or not I should do this lecture. And I actually talked to my chair at that time and said, so there's not a problem with talking about the social resistance to evolution and the religion science clash. And you know, basically, this is academic freedom. You need to hit it head on. And so I've been doing it ever since. How do people react when you teach about climate change, climate disruption? <laughs> Same thing. So and when I got out of the non-majors classes, uh, it seemed that they were being less upset about evolution but more upset about this climate change stuff. And statistics are that a larger percent of Americans don't accept climate change. So a lot of pushback, same kind of pushback. Teaching evaluations are loaded with comments about, I shouldn't be teaching it, it's not true, there's no evidence, stick to the facts, on and on and on. And it's a very frustrating thing to see. And that's not connected to religious beliefs, that's rejection of science. So, yeah, it's very, very frustrating. So I, I got beaten up pretty thoroughly teaching those two topics. <laughs> so what do we need to do as a country, as a society, to foster better acceptance of science? Well, we need better science education. I think it starts with we need to help all the teachers and the students by giving them a much stronger foundation in evolutionary biology, climate change, and, and help give them the tools to deal with the parents that are going to reject it. So we have to help the teachers. We have to train the future teachers better. So basically, we in academics, university-level academics, are the ones that are failing here. But things need to be changed. So it's not just paying teachers more. We need to help them be trained better. Any teacher that will be teaching high school biology, we really should have them take an evolution course. The National Center for Science Education is there to help any teacher that needs the help. And they're doing workshops and they put a lot of effort into this. So we've got to provide the information for the teachers. We've got to help them because you know, they're teaching their guts out. anyway. They, so how do we make this nation more accepting of science? The anti-vaccination movement, how do we deal with that? The anti-climate environmental issue attitude, how do we deal with that? It's a frustrating thing. So if somebody really has the answer, we need to hear it. <laughs> you end the piece that you wrote in Orion magazine with the story of a run-in with a former student who 
well, wasn't very accepting of your lessons on evolution, but then went on to become a physician. Tell us about him, please. This is a great story. And I taught a freshman seminar called Evolutionary Medicine. He took the class, evangelical, believed in the literal truth of the Bible and Genesis. And he really, really struggled with this evolutionary medicine stuff. And he stuck with the class. And we've had several encounters over the years where I saw him, I think it was probably, oh, it's been several years now. I was out on the road bicycling and I was at about my 20th mile and he was probably on his 50th mile and being much younger, he shot by me and he came back and he recognized me. And we had a long talk while we're bicycling. And he told me that he, after the class, went and listened to a number of creationists and was really pretty embarrassed and appalled that fellow evangelical Christians were basically lying. And he recognized they're lying. And he said, I, I realize now, as you said, I can have my religious beliefs and accept evolution. And so he thanked me and off he went. And so I haven't had not seen him for a while. And then actually about a year ago, I was in the hospital. I got hit with pneumonia where I almost died a couple of times. And so I'm laying on this bed in emergency here at the University of Kentucky. And here he came in as a resident. <laughs> and uh, we had a great talk and he hoped that I was well and that he was just finishing up. And he was, I think, joining Doctors Without Borders. And then I saw him for the last time this summer. I walked by him on the way over to the hospital and, and he was thrilled to see that I was doing okay. And he, he said, the first thing he said with a huge smile on his face was, you turned my world upside down. You blurred the lines between black and white. And then he thanked me. And it was just really pretty marvelous to see that here is at least one student out of my 24,000 students that realized that he could have his faith and accept evolution and it was okay. And yeah, it made it worthwhile. It's like, I might as well just hang it up and retire now. I have a victory. <laughs> Jim Krupa is a biology professor at the University of Kentucky. His article in Orion magazine is called Defending Darwin. Thanks for taking the time with me today. You bet. Thanks. This is great fun. Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Naomi Ehrenberg, Bobby Bascom, Emma Fitzgerald, Lauren Hinkle, Helen Palmer, Adelaide Chen, Jenny Doring, John Duff, James Kerwood, and Jennifer Marquis. Our show was engineered by Tom Tiger, with help from Jake Regal, Noel Flatt, and Jeff Wayne. Allison Larish-Dean composed our themes. You can find us anytime at LOE.org, and like us, please, on our Facebook page. It's PRI's Living on Earth, and we tweet from at Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting strategic communication and collaboration in solving the world's most pressing environmental problems. The Candida Fund, furthering the values that contribute to a healthy planet, and Gilman Ordway for coverage of conservation and environmental change. Living on Earth is also supported by Stonyfield Farm, makers of organic yogurt, smoothies, and more www.stonyfield.com PRI Public Radio International